Well, welcome everybody. This could be the last time we meet like this. <laughs> and uh, ensuing recordings will be live. Uh, and so there'll be peanut gallery and other things going on around me as I preach, and that'll be nice. I may not have the same eye contact with the camera because there's other people to look at in the room, although we've had a nice crowd here with the tech team and a few visitors on occasion, and so we're, we're thankful for that. But we're looking forward to March 21st. And, you know, we've been praying about this on Wednesdays as we gather a group of men here at the church and uh, so I'm going to give God the glory just for this, you know, that, that we're able to open and we're just looking forward to having you here. And of course, there'll be some, you know, things that we will have to follow because that's just responsible, but, but we're just going to be glad to be here and the kids are going to be here and we're just going to keep moving up and out together and back in the room. And, you know, so glad that it happened in this time in history when we had the internet, when we could record, when we could put things online so you could stay with us. I know many of you have been tracking with us online, so thank you uh, just for sticking with us, and we look forward to seeing you live when you're ready to come and we're ready to engage together. How do you respond to Jesus? I mean, what do you think of when you think of the, the word Jesus? For some people, Jesus is a word that's said in, in frustration or anger alongside of other, you know, profanities <laughs> that are uttered in, 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 you know, in moments, you know, and you know, vulgarity and so forth. That, that, that's that for some people, and if you heard the name Jesus in, in our city, that's the context that they would be saying that name. For others, Jesus is this, like, almost magical name of an incantation that you can use to, to help you in situations where you need you know, support or, you know, spiritual help. And so you, Jesus is like a magical formula. You just throw that name in there and it, and it helps you. For some would say Jesus. They would say, oh, that's a great Jewish rabbi who had wonderful ethical teachings, who influenced world religions. And, and so if we can just capture the essence of his teachings, we capture the essence of the man and he's just influenced the whole world. And, and that's what they think when they think of Jesus. Or maybe when I say Jesus to you, like Jesus, yeah, that's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's, of course, what Mark would suggest to you, the first century writer of this gospel account would say, yeah, if you, I'm talking about Jesus, I'm not talking about a swear word, I'm not talking about some mystical, magical, you know, unicorn kind of name, I'm not just speaking of some great ethical, rabbinical teacher, I'm speaking about the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God. You see, what we mean and what we're thinking of when we say Jesus impacts hugely how we respond to him. What we think about Jesus really does have a direct bearing on our, on our behavioral response to him. And as we move along through the Gospel of Mark, talking about soul revolution with Jesus, we encounter in this text three different responses, what C.S. Lewis would call the trilemma. A dilemma is when you have, you, you kind of hit a fork in the road and you got to choose one way or the other. And it's, it's, what do I do? I've got a dilemma. A trilemma is when, when there's three options. And Mark says, as we look at the people in this account with Jesus, we see there's three options. Jesus is either mad or Jesus is bad or Jesus is God. And maybe if you're watching this for the first time today or you've been tracking with us but you haven't been part of our church, you're like, hey, I'm just checking this stuff out. Maybe for you, these are things that you've been thinking about. 
For those of you that are, are in with Jesus and been following him, this might help you to understand the people around you, but also to understand, you know, the difference that Jesus makes in your own life. He's either mad, bad, or he's God. In Mark 3, verse 20, we find Jesus, after he's appointed the 12, he's back home, Capernaum, we assume. It says, Jesus went home, and a crowd gathered, so they were not able to eat. The crowd is pressing around Jesus. It's inhibiting his ability to do what he needs to do. If you'll notice, the crowd in Mark is never positive. And here again, the crowd doesn't care that Jesus hasn't eaten. They're just looking out for their own interests. Um, and it says in verse 21, when his family heard this, they went out to restrain him. For they said, he is out of his mind. It's crazy. The crowd is pressing in. There's no time to eat. The, the way it's phrased here, it could almost be even the fact that his family has heard the rumor that Jesus is crazy because of all the stuff's going on. Man, he's got this crowd. He's not even looking after himself. We need to get him out of this situation. Now, understand, when I say mad, I mean, this is psychotic derangement. Like, he's clearly not got a clear sense of reality in their minds. Uh, this is not a comment about mental illness or anything like that. But they, they are like, there's something wrong, and we, we need to get him out of this situation. This is a time of intervention. Although the word used to, to restrain him is... Uh, a word which means to seize forcibly, or it's used elsewhere in Mark in, the, in that context, to seize forcibly. We need to get him out of this situation. He is mad. Now, we're going to come back to Jesus at the end of this passage. This section in Mark 3, verse 20 to 35, is sort of a sandwich section. It starts with the family, then he has this situation with the scribes, and then it's his family again at the bottom. And so, so it starts, it introduces this idea of Jesus being mad. We're going to get back to it again at the end, but he's like, Clearly, his family does have this perspective of Jesus. They're looking at it just on a human plane, on a naturalistic plane. What must be wrong with Jesus is he just has had too much people, too much, you know, adventure, too much excitement. We need to get him out of this. He is mad. Now, interesting, up to this point, Mark hasn't even brought any any of the significant teachings of Jesus to the forefront. That'll come in next chapter. But as Jesus begins to teach, some of the things that come out of his mouth, I mean, if he's not number three, he, clear, he must be mad because to say those kind of things would, would be only be lunacy. He's mad. They want to protect him and they want to protect the family from embarrassment. In a culture of shame, this was huge. Right? You're, you're, you're bringing dishonor upon our family by what you're doing, Jesus. You see, they only see Jesus as just a man. A man who's gone crazy. He's mad. But then it switches gears, and we find this middle section of Jesus is bad. 3 verse 22, it says, The experts in the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. So you get, this, you get to imagine this. There's this group that have been sent 
into Galilee from Jerusalem on this mission to figure out how to deal with this crazy guy, oh, crazy according to his family, but who's, who's rustling things up. People are streaming in from all over. They're talking, you know, Messiah, King, all these ideas. And, and then they're like, we, we gotta find a way to, to deal with this threat. And so as they observe it, what they're saying is, we recognize this guy has power. He's, he's been able to handle demons, but where does he get that power? they begin to just cast a little shadow of suspicion over the true nature of Jesus. It's like Jesus is some Darth Vader, right, who once worked for the good of the force, and now he's gone on to the dark side, right? You know, uh, Stedman would say, you know, Jesus has joined the mafia, and he's serving the satanic godfather. I mean, that's what, that's what he's saying here, you know. Here's, here's Jesus. You know, he's possessed by Beelzebul, you know, the lord of the, of the land or lord of the flies. And, and by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. How does he do this? Well, he's on the dark side. And this is like a, a, a dark battle, dark with dark. And here we are sitting on the outside watching this. And, boy, he's a bad dude, basically, is what these guys are saying. Jesus is bad. And so Jesus answers them, and he answers them with these parables in verse 23 and on. There's two major kind of parables, but different pictures, word pictures Jesus used. He called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? I mean, he's like, have you guys thought this through, really? I mean, if, if this is Satan, why is he casting himself and his, his own minions out of, of, like, does that make sense to you? Let, let me... Let me Bring it a little further for you, Jesus says. If a kingdom, in verse 24, is divided against itself, that kingdom will not be able to stand. I mean, history is full of examples where, where there's internal conflict in a kingdom, that kingdom will begin to disintegrate. I mean, a kingdom that is not unified, on the same mission together, serving the same leader together, I mean, that kingdom will, will just self-destruct from the inside out. He says, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand either. You know? And so there's a kingdom. You think about a house, right? You think about, you know, if mom and dad aren't getting along or if the kids aren't getting along, I mean, that, that house will eventually crumble. A, a family that fights with, you know, just creates this ongoing dysfunction which will eventually destroy the whole family unit. It doesn't really work. He says in verse 26, if Satan rises against himself and is divided, he is not able to stand. And his end has come. He's like, there is a battle going on here. There is a kingdom battle going on here. But it's not within the kingdom of, of, the, of the evil one. It's good versus evil. It's God versus Satan. And that battle is beginning to be over. Because everywhere Jesus steps, there's no fight. It's immediate retreat. It's immediate surrender. It's immediate you know, obedience to what he tells them to do. I mean, Jesus is handling it. This is the beginning of the end for Satan. Good is finally going to conquer. Now, ultimately, that will happen when Jesus goes to the cross, dies, and then rises again. And that's like the final conquest. He's dealt with it. He's taking care of sin and death once and for all. But he's like, like, like I am, this is not Satan battling Satan. Like, think about what you guys are saying he's saying to him. And then he uses this picture in verse 27. But no one is able to enter a strong man's house and steal his property 
unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can thoroughly plunder his house. You know, the picture here is, you know, Satan is this strong man who has limited authority on the earth, but is, is ruling and is causing havoc. And Jesus is coming up, and he's in the process of wrapping the cords around Satan and, and throwing him down so that he can plunder his kingdom and bring it back into the kingdom of heaven. He's like, you know, if, if you're going to steal from some big, strong man, I mean, you, you can't just walk into his house and start grabbing the silver, grabbing the electronics. I mean, you, you got to deal with that guy, you know, stun gun or, you know, something in his food or hold him at bay with a knife. Or, I mean, you got to subdue him. He uses this picture of this strong man's house, but he's like, you know, I've entered the house and I've dealt with this man and his doom is sure. And he says in verse 28, I tell you the truth. People will be forgiven for all sins, even the, all the blasphemies they utter. I mean, that's good news for us, right? Just like, every, there's, you know, sin is sin and it's horrific, it's awful, but man, there's forgiveness. Even if you misuse the name of God and, and, and are, you know, in, in swearing, I mean, if you walk around saying OMG all the time, I mean, you clearly don't respect the name of God and that's something that, you know, God's word makes it really clear about, but, but suddenly you realize, man, I gotta stop talking like that. And you, and you ask for forgiveness. God's like, yeah, I forgive you. Thank you. And, and, and now show, me, show my name the respect it deserves. And, 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 but he's like, but, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they said he has an unclean spirit. Now, this verse has scared a lot of people <laughs> in a lot of eras of Christian life. Christians have wondered, well, how do I know if I've maybe accidentally committed the unpardonable, the unforgiving sin? But understand, there is a clear context in this particular portion of history and in the Gospel of Mark. I mean, the, the living Son of God is standing right in front of these people. They recognize he has power over the demonic realm. They've probably heard about his miracles and they're not defying those either. But in the moment, instead of turning to him in faith and saying, clearly this guy comes from God and, and somehow God is working through him, they take what he's doing and they ascribe it to the, to the devil. And Jesus says, that is un." pardonable sin. It's scary for them, but less scary for, for us. No one living today, as one commentator says, is living in quite the same situation, and therefore in quite the same danger. The balancing truth is that anyone who continually rejects the grace of God available through Jesus while not beyond God's mercy, still runs the risk of finding it more and more difficult to repent and seek that grace. Hughes tells a story about this guy in, in the hospital. His friend, Pastor Ben Hayden, was called to visit this man on his deathbed. Here, I'll read it for you. Several years ago, Ben Hayden visited a hospital at 3.30 a.m. to see a man he had known for some years. The doctor had said the man was dying and knew it. 
So Pastor Hayden asked him how it was between him and the Lord. Oh, he said, I've, I've always believed in God, and I know everything is shipshape. What do you believe about Jesus? Hayden asked him. I've known God all my life, he said, and I've tried to observe godly standards. I've been honest in business, and I've worked hard. My friend, said Pastor Hayden, and I wouldn't be here if I weren't your friend. Answer a straight question. How is it between you and Jesus? To which the man replied, I've never made a place in my life for Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. If I were to believe in Jesus, it would upset everything in my philosophy and my life. And I would have to rethink everything about me. By the grace of God, Pastor Hayden said, you have that time, kind of time. Rethink it. No, he said, I will die without Jesus. Why then do you think Jesus died, asked the pastor. Oh, I understand. He died for sins. Your sins, said Hayden. Perhaps, perhaps, but it's too late in my life to rethink the place of Jesus. And he died. This knowledgeable man died resolutely rejecting Christ. In that way, I guess that is the unpardonable sin. For you to come face to face with the glorious Son of God and to say, no, I don't want that. I don't need that. I can't fit that into my life. Unpardonable because you then enter eternity forever separated from him. And what a horrific place. Jesus did, came to, to seek and save the lost. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to, to free us from our sinfulness and to bring us into freedom. But here, this group of scribes, experts in the law, men who had spent hours pouring through the scriptures, supposedly godly, righteous men come face to face with the Son of God himself and they cannot see it. They are so spiritually blind. And not only do they ignore that, but then they ascribe all that glorious, miraculous power to the dark side. It's a solemn warning that we look at Jesus carefully and respond to him accordingly. Well, we come back to his mom and his brothers standing outside. Verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came. Uh, Jesus did have brothers. Mary had other children, just in case you didn't realize that. There, she, she was a, a good mom, and she, she did her Jewish duty, had multiple children. Standing outside, they sent word to him to summon him. I mean, and every son, even grown sons, know when mama calls, you come, right? That's just the way it works, especially in, in this culture, but even in some of your cultures, you understand that? When, when mama's outside, when mama's on the phone, when mama's texting, you, you, you answer mama. That's the responsible son does that. The crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. They're seeking for you. Hey, Jesus, don't you know who's outside? The sociological response in that culture would be like, oh, okay, see you guys later. Got to go deal with mom and bros and see what's going on out there. And Jesus just totally turns the expectation on its head and he answers in verse 33, and he says, Who are my mothers and my brothers? 
Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? I mean, they, they're outside. Like, what, you know, what do you mean, who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking at those who were sitting around him in a circle, verse 34, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. You're like, whoa. What are you talking about, Jesus? You see, Jesus is either mad or he's bad or he's God. And one of his roles as God, the eternal son, is to come to this earth to create and to form a new family. I mean, as you read through the New Testament, you'll discover the family imagery which describes the, the people of God as they gather together is, is, is sprinkled throughout the, the New Testament writers. You become part of a family. As God, he is creating a family of those who follow him and believe in him. Now, for Mark's readers, I'm thinking Christians in Rome, possibly during the time of Nero, many of them would have possibly, you know, would have followed Jesus and lost connection with their family because of the choice they made to follow Jesus. And no doubt there was times when they wondered if, if they did the, you know, oh man, you know, I, I, I hated to do that. I mean, my family's so important to me, but, but Jesus is more important. And, and Jesus just is reaffirming here in this story, you are now part of my forever family. I mean, first of all, he calls the disciples and says, come, I'll make you fishers of men. I'm going to give you a real purpose. And then he takes them up on the mountains like, yeah, you're going to be sent out ones. You're going to be apostles. You're going to be on my mission. You're going to be with me, and I'm, and I'm going to send you out. And now he's like, and, and not only that, you are my family. And when you know Jesus as God, you become part of that family forever. Now, in our world today, we see the disintegration of family. We live in a world where, where sin has just ravaged relationships. And to be honest, every one of us is affected by it, either personally or close, those close to us. And we all see it, and we, and we live in it, and, and the filth of it, and, and just the, the horror of it just kind of washes around us all the time. So much so that, that, you know, we watch TV shows that, that create family amongst, you know, diverse groups of people. Why? Because we long for that in our own lives. Even just sitcoms, you know, where, where you got this, you know, eclectic group of people hanging out. You know, you're just watching them live life together. And, and it goes on for season after season after season. Why do people watch this? Because they're, they're internally longing for that. I mean, everyone wants to belong somewhere, don't we? And there are places in life where you get little snippets of it, but what Jesus is, is offering and, and, and providing is deeper than any of those snippets. I mean, you may have played on a sports team where you're like, man, we were really close, but it, it, it's not like this. Maybe you've served in the military or in the police force or in some type of a uniformed squad where you've just really been watching each other's back and there's a sort of a solidarity and brotherhood, sisterhood that comes with that. And, and, and that's deep and significant, but, but this even goes deeper than that. Because there is a spiritual connection that happens when you discover Christ and you serve other followers of Christ together. 
I call it, you know, you're sitting with Jesus and you're serving with Jesus together. You're growing with Jesus and and you're moving with Jesus. Growing and going with Jesus. You're, You're moving up and out with Jesus together. There's something that happens in those moments that bonds the hearts of believers together in this familial connection. And don't tell me you don't want that. You want that. You want to be in a place where everybody knows your name and they're glad you came. Come on, you know that. You want that, that, that sense of like, people accept me just as I am. Because God loves me and they love me. And we're growing and becoming more like Jesus every day. But there's rough spots and there's, there's low spots. But we just keep growing together. But it, some, it really happens in the context, I believe, of service. When you engage in ministry with people together, that's when your hearts begin to knit together and you discover this bond. In 1995, I, I came to Lloydminster and served at a church here. And I was an intern, and one of my responsibilities was serving at a camp this church ran. And it was a unique camp. I'd done a lot of camp ministry, but I'd never seen anyone like this. One church ran one camp. And they didn't bring in a bunch of college students to run the camp. The people in the church ran the camp. And I was like, well, that's different. Interesting. And, of course, it wasn't a big camp. There were about 40 kids, possibly, around that. And, and then they would have, like, 25, 30 staff. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of staff for that many kids. I was like, that's really not a good ratio. Of, you know, is that even responsible? And, I, I, you know, I, I'm thinking this. I'm a 21-year-old. I know everything, right? I've, you know, I've been in camp, you know. But, but they did this. This was something that no one else did. I had never seen this model before. Bankers, nurses, educators, uh, oil field workers, uh, carpenters, uh, homemakers, I mean, farmers, small business owners. They're all different people from different walks of life gathered up at this camp and ran this camp for kids. You know, one was the craft person, another was the games director, the waterfront leader, the you know, musician leader. And, you know, they all had responsibilities, roles on the team, serving together, bringing the gospel to kids, helping them grow in their faith. And about midweek, I realized something was happening. We were becoming a family. Because not only did we love Jesus, but we, you know, we were serving Jesus' mission together. And it just, it had this bonding effect. You began to just look at the people around you and, and the, your love is growing for them because you're serving together. And it's like this, it's this deeply spiritual experience. Why? Because it's centered around Jesus. And it's empowered by his Holy Spirit. So that's what makes it different from the, from the army or a team or, or some other, you know, service club you're part of. It's, it's deeper than that. Why? Because it's, it's spiritually connected through the Holy Spirit. And I was like, wow. And, and so I'm like, wow, why do people take their holidays to come up here? Because of that. Because it just was this, like, it wasn't magical. It was spiritual. It was this moment of God connection with, and connecting with each other. And we became family in that moment. And I thought, okay, you know, 25 staff, it's not about just the kids and providing an opportunity for them to go to camp. It's about a bunch of people growing together in their faith. I mean, it was... 
years before its time, but I mean, this was a discipleship program at its best, you know? I mean, the churches invest a lot of money and staff time trying to develop, develop discipleship pathways, and here, here the, the, this church had figured it out. Just send a bunch of people up there for a week, and boom, they just bond and grow and develop spiritual gifts and service, and it was awesome. But that doesn't happen if you just sit in church and watch and listen, and you don't get out and participate. I'm just speaking honestly. It doesn't happen if you kind of come to church when you feel like it. Oh, I come once a month, come every other month. I mean, you're not going to get that. You won't feel like you're part of the family. And, and don't give me that, oh, no one reached out to me. you got to get up and get involved. You're not a victim here. This is an opportunity, and we invite you to that. If you're looking for a place just to sit and not, not do anything, I mean, if you're just seeking out Jesus, that's cool. But if you're a follower of Jesus, but no, I don't get involved, this is not the church for you. Because <laughs> we're committed to you moving up and out in new life in Jesus Christ. And frankly, we don't have room for, 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 for you to just take up space here. We want you involved. And if you're not on the mission of Jesus, then, then, then you're, you're taking up a space for someone else to get on the mission of Jesus. But we're inviting you to that. Jesus is pretty clear about that. You have abandoned other things to become part of my family. And I will look after you. And Jesus carries those disciples all the way along and even after his resurrection and he goes, he ascends into heaven, sends his Holy Spirit and, and he's still looking out and he's still looking after us. He's mad, he's bad, or he's God. And when you respond to him as God, that means you are accepting him as your king. I mean, in the Gospel of Mark, it's like repent and believe the gospel. You're turning away from your selfish kingdom and you're turning towards the kingdom of Jesus. But, but what is the kingdom of Jesus? Look at the end of that verse. It says in verse 29. Oh, sorry, yeah, sorry, not 29. 35. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Does the will of God. It's not... Whoever thinks the right things, whoever, you know, has the right moral behavior, it's those who do God's will. And if Jesus is God, that means you're obeying Jesus every step of your life. You've handled, you've handed in your civilian clothes, and you're putting on the uniform of Christ, and you're following his every command. He dictates what you do, where you go, how you spend your money, what places you'll spend your holidays. I mean, he's given the carte blanche to help and to guide, and you're like, I will follow you, and you are the king, and you dictate, and you guide, and I trust you. And some of you are afraid to trust Jesus with that level of control in your life because you're like, no, I need to control, I need to control, I need to control. If you really evaluate how your own control has worked out, you'll see that, man, this is not really working out. And Jesus offers a much better kingdom alternative. If he's just a man, or if he's mad, he can't help you. If he's bad, he can't help you. But if he's God, he really can help you and make a difference in your life and change the trajectory of where you're going. Whoever does the will of God. We hit this trilemma. What do I do with Jesus? And some of you may be like, well, I'm not ready to decide. But to me, understand it. This is like canoeing in a river. 
You know, Lisa and I canoed in a river when we were early married, and it was this little Red Deer River, upper Red Deer River, very narrow, pretty fast, and, and you couldn't see very far. It's not like the North Saskatchewan where you can see miles. I mean, you kind of know what's coming. You're, you're good. I mean, this was a, a little windy, snake-like river, and you had to always be ready. Rocks, big logs, you know, eddies, whirlpools, I mean, all sorts of stuff. But then there would be times in the river where they would, would, would split into channels, and you had to choose a channel. You had to hope you got the right one that was deep, that didn't have big logs in it, and who knows what. And so you had to choose the channel. If you didn't choose the channel, the river chose for you. <laughs> and life pushes us towards the reality of Jesus, and we've got to make a choice. And Mark says, paddle towards the Son of God. That is a safe channel. <laughs> it is a secure channel. And it's the channel to get you where you want to go. If you don't paddle that way, you'll end up going somewhere else. You can't just stop and, oh, well, I'm okay. No, the river carries you. Life carries you. And today, Mark invites you to believe in Jesus Christ. And for those of you believers that are like, I'm I'm a follower of Jesus, maybe Mark's telling you, now get up and really follow Jesus. Put some shoe leather into that belief. You know, put some sweat some work into that belief. Put some effort, put some love. Put some relational equity into that belief. Step out and get involved. So we're excited, March 21st. We're gonna be back in the room. But that's not what it's all about. We come, it's gonna be times of celebration, times of encouragement, but the idea is you come in, you fill up, and you go. Because your neighbors, your coworkers, there's people that you play sports with, the people that you see at the store, They need Jesus. So while we're glad that you can come here and we're glad we can encourage you, and yes, we're going to praise God together, we're going to celebrate together, we're going to enjoy Easter together, but then we're going to be like, now let's get out there. Let's keep the mission moving forward. Let's move up and out in new life in Jesus Christ. So how will you respond to Jesus today? I hope you'll respond in the right way put your faith fully in him and and really step out and follow him in active obedience to the will of God. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus and for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for the power that he has and how he took care of the devil once and for all. And while the devil has limited opportunity and activity in the world, his doom is sure because of what Christ accomplished. We claim that today. And Lord, in new life, we ask. We ask that that you would guide us. And I pray for each person watching this, this video that they would be confident and that their will and their heart would desire to do what you want in their life. That they would surrender and submit to you and to your will that together we would follow you and move up and out in new life in Jesus. Lord, I pray especially for the person that's hurting today, that's, that's got pain in their life, that they would turn to you and find the healing that you can provide. And so we thank you. We look forward in excitement to what you will do in and through our lives as we exist and serve together as your family. And so we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for joining in today. Just want to say, if you've been watching us, but maybe never come to church, you're like, yeah, I've been watching. I don't even know what, what goes on in, in the church. I see on the camera, and you're, you're like, I want to come to church, but I'm a little afraid. Reach out to us. Hey, you know, we'll even reserve a spot for you if you've never been to church before. Be like, I want to come. We'll, we'll reserve some seats. We'll welcome meet you at the door. We'll help you in here. We're here to help make this transition into church life as, as, as seamless as possible. And so just give us a call if you're concerned about what do I do with my kids. We can talk you through that. But we look forward to seeing you. Church family, um, we're, we're going to need you to step up to help us to, to kick these things off. And so just be prepared and respond in joyful obedience as we raise up the team and get this ministry moving back on Sunday mornings. I look forward to seeing you. God bless you. Have a great week.